Captain Kirk is wearing a toga and a laurel wreath around his head. Um, Lieutenant Uhura has a skimpy dress on. I'm so frightened. They put their cheeks together. I'm so very frightened. They're looking off into the distance and sort of whisper a final few lines to each other, but then they're compelled to kiss. Do you remember your first kiss? How it felt? How you felt? I mean, think about it. Lips on lips. The taste of novelty. What had been forbidden was now allowed. The emotional flood that accompanies the introduction to intimacy was felt by the entire nation when Captain James Tiberius Kirk and Lieutenant Nyota Uhura touched mouth to mouth 50 years ago. I'm Philip Martin, and this is Heat and Light. We bring you the stories you may not have heard about last century's most pivotal year, 1968. We have a pointing device called a mouse. Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? That moment in 1968 would help define the era. This was a white man and a black woman kissing for the first time on American television. A transition from anti-miscegenation laws upholding the racial homogeneity of American culture into a less monochromatic world where intimacy among various races could not only be imagined but observed, seen. On this episode, we talk about that kiss with Professor Matt Delmont from Arizona State University. This guy knows a lot about African-American history, especially on television. And his own family history tells us a lot about what was going on in 1968. One hint, he's biracial. Matt, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Your specialty is absolutely intriguing because you're talking about the intersection in many ways of history and memory. You've written about the first interracial kiss on television what did it look like and how was it received? So the first interracial kiss on television was uh, Star Trek. It's in 1968, and it's between Captain Kirk, played by William Shatner, and Lieutenant Uhura, played by Nichelle Nichols. And it's a really odd episode. It's an episode called Plato's Stepchildren. The Enterprise crew travels to this foreign planet, um, an alien planet, where all the people there worship Plato, the philosopher Plato. But they also have powers of uh, telekinesis. So they're able to take mind control over the crew of the Enterprise. And the whole episode is set up that the aliens on this planet are controlling the Enterprise crew and forcing them to do things they wouldn't otherwise do. So that's the setup in which this kiss takes place. So their Enterprise crew is asked to perform this play and they force William Shatner's character and Michelle Nichols' character to embrace and then eventually to kiss. And why don't we take a listen to uh, that episode? Now... Let the rebels begin. So it's kind of an auditorium setting, and you have the uh, accolades of Plato watching the audience while the crew of the Enterprise is putting on this play while they're under mind control. So if you can, <laughs> can process all that. Captain Kirk is wearing a toga and a laurel reef around his head. Um, Lieutenant Uhura has a relatively skimpy dress on, and her hair is in a kind of bouffant, so it's very stylized. What's interesting though, is because they're under mind control, they don't want to be embracing. So their, their language is they keep saying, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this. No, no, I'm, I don't want this to be happening. I'm so frightened, Captain. I'm so very frightened. That's the way they want you to feel. Makes them think that they're alive. While they're showing these two characters embracing, they'll then cut 
to the Plato's acolytes, the aliens who are watching this, and they are at turns kind of stimulated and horrified. So it's this very interesting spectacle that's going on. Eventually, after nearly a minute of Captain Kirk and Lieutenant Uhura being sort of in this embrace and trying to resist it, um, they put their cheeks together, they're walking off into the distance. I'm thinking of all the times on the Enterprise when I was scared to death. And I would see you so busy at your command. And I would hear your voice from all parts of the ship. And my fears would fade. And now they're making me tremble. But I'm not afraid. I am not afraid. But then they're compelled to kiss. And then they cut to a final reaction shot of Plato's acolytes, who again are kind of titillated and, and slightly horrified by what they've seen. I got to tell you, it's it, it's it it's hilarious. It's I know it's supposed to be a real serious scene in 1968. It was taken very seriously. But when you see it these days, it's pretty funny. I, it, do you think it aged well? Um, not necessarily, no. Um, I think it's it's the whole setup is very peculiar, even for Star Trek standards. And just the the acting style, right? I mean, William Shatner, of course, was famous for, for overacting, overacting his part. But the fact that they're under mind control and that they have this kind of corny back and forth with the, with the aliens who, who are controlling their movements, it's, uh, it's a very peculiar thing to watch these days. When you watch this, of course, you have the court. They're cringing. Uh, and, uh, and I'm sure the, the nation was, too. Uh, how was this received? So it depends on which generation you're talking about and which region you're talking about. Um, so I think for a younger generation, people who are Star Trek fans, they thought it was exciting. Um, one of the things Star Trek did when it came on television was kind of push the boundaries on what you could uh, portray on television, certainly in terms of technology, but also in terms of different issues regarding race and gender. Um, so I think this was in line with that. It was, it was taking an interesting take on a, a progressive issue. Um, for people of an older generation, particularly people in the South, um, they were very upset by it um, because this was not something that was they deemed to be okay to show on television. One thing that's important about television versus film is it comes into people's homes. And so to be able to broadcast this on television, have people watch it potentially with their families, that was upsetting for a lot of white viewers because they didn't want uh, their families seeing a white man kissing an African-American woman, even if it was in this contrived, futuristic alien setting. And that in itself is quite interesting, though it was perhaps uh, perceived as progressive. The fact that they had to be under control of some alien force in order for this to take place in itself seems um, that it was a caveat written by the producers and the directors as a way of making it uh, amenable to uh, a part of their audience that had not yet accepted this as uh, non-taboo. Yeah, it's really a, a strange a strange episode and a strange kiss. Um, the, the whole production of it is, is peculiar. The whole way they have to set it up is that they're compelled to do it. So it isn't that they're in love and it's a romantic kiss that they're planning to, to date or to get married. And it's really framed as a spectacle. So as you're saying, the, the, the scene is set up as though it's a play and there's a, all the alien Plato worshippers are, are there watching it um, and, and cringing as they're seeing it. And so I think what the producers are playing around with is it was uh, a taboo spectacle that they were putting on TV at the time and it's reflected in how they staged it for the episode. What was happening behind the scenes to, to, that would allow this kiss to happen? So I think for the producers of Star Trek, again, they were really interested in trying to put 
contemporary concerns on television, but because they're working in the future, they're able to kind of cast them in this kind of futuristic bent. Space, a final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. So there are other episodes that have planets where you have people of different races and they sort of consider issues of integration around that. But for them, I think this having this kiss written into one of the episodes, it was a, a gesture towards sort of issues of interracial relationships in the U.S. at the time. They they knew it was going to be controversial. They had to um, appease the NBC um, executives who were concerned about it. They had to make the case that this is something that they wanted to keep in the episode. And I think part of the reason they framed it in the way they did was to try to try to keep a sci-fi bent on it, try not to make it a romantic kiss, um, because they were worried that it would only alienate uh, Southern viewers and, and advertisers even more. <laughs> Which makes it even uh, more uh, intriguing to think that they could go from planet to planet kissing uh, green and purple uh, creatures, uh, but kissing a, a black woman on television was pretty problematic in 1968. Yeah, that's what that's what strikes me as one of the the unfortunately funniest parts about the whole thing is that that's that's the issue that's dangerous. That's the issue that uh, would be would be un, unimaginable. That Star Trek is envisioning whole other planets with whole other people. They have people putting other people under mind control, people of entirely different alien species. But the issue that would raise the concerns of NBC's executives would be, you know, can we have two characters of different races kiss? Um, it's unfortunate that that was the sort of the dividing line or that was what was deemed problematic in the era. Why did Star Trek do it? Or why did they want to do it, I should ask? It might sound corny, but I think the, the show really did want to go boldly where no show had gone before. A lot of what was on in the late 60s were Western, so a lot of what was on television was, was backward-looking. or There wasn't a lot of science fiction content. That gave them a, a freedom to pursue topics that they could safely say, you know, we're not actually talking about the present, we're talking about the future. This is Imagine. It's obviously, it's obviously fictional. While the kiss of 1968 fell short for some folks because it was framed as fictional and literally out of this world, the movie Guess Who's Coming to Dinner a year earlier was even less daring. That flick starring Sidney Poitier and Catherine Houghton is one of the first major films portraying an interracial relationship on the big screen. And guess what? The couple never even touched. Do you mean have we been to bed together? I don't mind you asking me that. We haven't. He wouldn't. What made 68 so different that it that this space existed where this type of situation, a kiss, an interracial kiss on television could take place? I think a lot of what you saw going on in popular culture in 68 was really forcing the past and the future into tension. And that's what I think is exciting about Star Trek is that because it was explicitly a science fiction show, explicitly looking to the future, it was really playing around with ideas about, you know, what is the country, what it's a world or the universe going to look like 100, 200, 300 years in the future. A lot of that's going on in the streets in 1968. People are asking questions about, do we have to be bound by uh, the way we've done things previously, or can we chart a new a new direction for America and chart a new direction for the world? I think in a very small way that plays out in Star Trek, but it's showing up across popular culture in this era. And I think the issue of interracial coupling is a particularly fraught one because there are such strong taboos against it uh, across media. Richard Perry Loving versus Virginia. 
criminal section, making a criminal penalty for Negro and white to intermarry in the state of Virginia. These laws rob the Negro race of their dignity. This is the worst part of these laws. These are slavery laws, pure and simple. Those were excerpts from the oral argument in the Loving versus Virginia case in the Supreme Court, which ruled in favor of interracial marriage just a year before the Star Trek episode. I mentioned earlier that Matt's personal story illustrates the racial tension of that year. His parents met in Minneapolis in 1968. His mom's name is Diane, his dad is Frank, and her folks had serious problems with their relationship. What was particularly interesting about them meeting in 1968 is they were an interracial couple. My dad's African-American and my mom's Italian-American. This fact did not sit well at all with either of their families. Um, on my dad's side, they would have preferred that he end up with a, another African-American woman, uh, but my mom's family really kind of freaked out. She encountered a lot of hostility from her parents. Um, it was a pretty tight-knit Italian-American family. And for her dad, um, it was something that he just couldn't countenance. He called her nigger lover. Um, by the time I'm five or six, my parents are telling me these kind of stories. And so I've always been interested in trying to get a better sense of what was going on in the 1960s, like how could people treat their own families in this way? Now that I'm a historian, I'm trying to get a better sense of, you know, what was our country like in this time? And then how did my parents kind of emerge from that? Part of it was, it was an act of rebellion. Uh, I think for a lot of people of their generation, um, they had graduated high school in 1966. So they were um, late teens, early 20s. They, they wanted to craft a new version of what the future could look like. Um, they didn't want to be kind of bound by uh, what their parents or their grandparents thought. And they wanted to see America go in a different direction. Um, they were active in the civil rights movement. They were active in the anti-war protests. Um, and I think on an interpersonal level, I think finding each other and falling in love was a small act of rebellion. In Minnesota, for example, you think about Minneapolis-St. Paul as a very liberal area. That is the paradigm. That is the, the way people frame it. But you said your own mother experienced some extraordinary personal uh, trauma racially, as did your father. What was Minneapolis-St. Paul like at that time, and how did it uh, symbolize what was happening in the nation? Minneapolis-St. Paul is a really interesting city to, to look back on. I think one of the reasons it's able to view itself as being a liberal city is it's been majority white for most of its history. So in 1968, there are only 1.5% of the population is African-American. Um, so in some ways, it's easy to say that you're okay with racial integration when there aren't a lot of black people around. Um, but like every city across the country, there were housing covenants and there were laws about which uh, races could and could not live in different neighborhoods. And so this impacted um, the different sides of my family directly. So my mom's family, um, they were working class, a lower middle class Italian-American family, but they had more options in terms of where they could buy a house. And then subsequently, that house was able to appreciate in value. For my dad's parents, they could only buy a house in North Minneapolis, which was one of the areas in which African-Americans could live. That house, because of segregation, because of housing policies, didn't appreciate in value in the same way. So the economic sort of outcome there, generations on, uh, doesn't look the same as it did for my, for my mom's family. It's one thing to say you're in favor of something, but it's an entirely different thing to actually make choices that uh, put people in the position to succeed. Did your folks ever talk about uh, that kiss? Um, my dad loved Star Trek. Um, he, he particularly loved the Spock character because he was very into to logic and trying to be emotionless. Um, so he talked about the kiss and said he, he was actually upset that William Shatner got to kiss Michelle Nichols and he didn't get to. Um, so he remembers the episode. He didn't think it was particularly, from his perspective, particularly um, uh, path-breaking in terms of, sort of interracial relations, but he definitely remembered, remembered the episode and loved everything Star Trek did in terms of thinking about 
new new futures. He loved the fact that they had an African American woman on the show for being part of this this new future. How did black folk react to uh, this uh, this scene? Uh, civil rights movement uh, leaders. Um, NAACP, others. From what I've been able to find, they were really excited that Nichelle Nichols' character got cast as Lieutenant Hura. I didn't find a lot of direct reaction to to the kiss itself, um, which I think speaks to the fact that for a lot of black viewers, this was, was interesting that it was happening, but there were much larger civil rights concerns going on. But I think the issue that was important for them that, that you had black people on TV. Um, you just didn't see many African Americans on television in this era. Um, most folks who grew up in that time recall stories of calling family in anytime there was any black person on television. Um, so the fact that you had Nichelle Nichols' character even being on Star Trek was important. And then having this this kiss, I think it moved it moved the ball forward just slightly. And then it gave people more space to uh, to imagine different ways of uh, telling fictional stories. So they could have different sitcoms, different variety shows. Uh, that will continue to push things forward in terms of uh, racial representations. Let's talk about your work and your your studies. Um, you use pop culture to explore what is missing in the discussion about civil rights in 2018. How does pop culture get at what's missing? We too often have a kind of an iconic view of civil rights where we think everyone was in favor of the civil rights movement and everyone was a supporter of Dr. King. And that was absolutely not true. Um, in 1968, 75% of Americans did not support Dr. King and the vast majority of white Americans did not support him or the civil rights movement. When we look back at sort of the media and the popular culture around civil rights, we can find very interesting representations of civil rights protests in northern cities, in cities like Boston and New York, Chicago, that don't figure in the way we usually talk about civil rights, but they are really interesting ways of talking about what people were fighting for in the 1960s and why those battles are still going on today in things like the Black Lives Matter movement, issues around school segregation, issues around police brutality. Malcolm X, what brings you here today? Well, I'm uh, out here to uh, see the successful expose of the New York City uh, school system. It proves that you don't have to go to Mississippi to, to find a segregated school system. We have it right here in New York City. Are you supporting this boycott? Yes, I did support it. I came as an observer, and I, and I supported it because it shows that the problems that the, the uh, white liberals have been pointing the finger at the southern segregationists and condemning them for exist right here in New York City. It's a messier history. It's a it's a more uncomfortable history, but it's a more honest history. Um, and I found when I talked to my students, if I can show them actual news footage of protests um, from uh, the 1960s in, in these sort of major northern cities, it really opens their eyes because they think, you know, if, if I've never seen this before, what else haven't I seen? Um, it's not enough just to focus on a handful of uh, marches and a handful of figures in, in one very important speech. We have to get a sort of broader context, and that's really what popular culture can help provide. If you turn on any television these days, you'll see um, uh, The Rock, you'll see Denzel Washington, you'll see uh, uh, Eddie Murphy, you'll see others uh, kissing someone of another race. You also see commercials featuring uh, kids of all races and colors and backgrounds. Are we looking at what some would call progress, or is it some form of obfuscation of, uh, of, a, of a deeper racial issue? I think in most ways it's progress. I think it's largely about what's good for business. Um, so when you look back to 1968, at that time, only 20% of Americans supported interracial marriage. Uh, in the present, 15% of marriages are interracial marriages, and 90% of people support 
interracial marriage. So the demographics of our country have just shifted. Um, so the reason this was the Star Trek kiss was groundbreaking in 1968 was it was taboo and dangerous because the network didn't think their consumers and the advertisers wanted to see it. It looks very different today. Um, I think that is largely a good thing um, to have more representations of of uh, people of color on uh, film and television, there could always be more, but to have more than we had in 1968, certainly, um, to have more interracial people show up on film and television, those are positive things. I think the thing where it can be obfuscation is that in and of itself is not enough, right? Just the demographic change doesn't mean that we have equality. And when you look at the kind of the economic markers, that's where the, the things are particularly troubling. So looking at unemployment rates, looking at the vast ga gaps in uh, income and wealth equality, I think those are where a lot of the real issues still still remain. So I'm, I would definitely term the the change representation to be uh, to be progressive, but not enough in and of itself. Remarkably, though, in 2018, the year of Trump, a lot of folks have spoken about a resurgence of fear, uh, in the fear of doing something like, for example, kissing in public if they happen to be folks of two different races. I'm sure that must be something that you or have thought about when you think about the resurgence of, um, of white supremacist organizations in the country. Absolutely. I think that's what's interesting to look back on this kiss is that for a lot of Americans in the present moment, they're still not okay with interracial marriages. And they're still not okay with these kind of representations on television. Um, that's disappointing and frightening. Um, but I think it's a good lesson that our, our history has never been sort of a strict kind of linear progress line. Things move episodically. They get better in some periods of time, and then they certainly regress in some periods of time. In the area of racial relations and racism, um, we're absolutely in a moment of regression right now. Um, I hope that we find our way through it and find better ways out of it. And I think one of the ways we can do that is recognizing parts of our history that we want to reclaim and, and try to raise up. What might be um, uh, the lasting and lingering impact of the first interracial kiss on television? For future generations, I hope that we reach a place where it seems absurd to our children and to the, our children's children that this was ever something that was taboo in the first place. I think that's what the episode allows us to, to see, that it's noteworthy because it was so taboo and so so dangerous at the time. And if we can use it as a way to sort of talk about, you know, why was this taboo? What were the issues around racism and white supremacy that made it taboo in the first place? That's, I think, will be the lasting historical importance of it. Matt, that was really fantastic. I, I really did learn quite a bit today. That was, uh, and I, th I thought I knew that period, but uh, not, not the way you framed it. Oh, I appreciate that. It was a lot, of, a lot of fun talking with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Heat and Light. If you like our show, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast and tweet us at Heat Light Pod. On our next episode, I'll share a bit about my hometown with you. We call it Detroit. Tune in. Heat and Light is a production of The Conversation U.S. Learn more about us at heatlightpod.com or check the show notes. Our show is produced and engineered by Maria Muriel. Our associate producer is Jonathan Gang. And our executive producer is Maria Belinska. Our theme music is by Kenny Kusiak. I'm Philip Martin. See you next time. If you're enjoying listening to Heat and Light, you should check out The Ant Hill, a podcast from our colleagues over at The Conversation UK. Each episode digs into research relating to a different theme. Here's a clip from Britain's astronomer royal, Martin Rees, explaining how physicists' search for nothing led to some surprising results. Empty space, although it seems 
to be nothing to us. That is just in the same way that water may seem to be nothing to a fish because it's uh, what's left when you take away other things floating in the sea. Um, so nothing uh, in the sense of empty space is, we realize, quite complicated. And so we have to look deeper to actually uh, satisfy the philosophers. And I think it's very important to bear in mind that the philosopher's nothing is not the same as a physicist's vacuum. That's The Anthill, available wherever you get your podcasts and at theconversation.com slash podcasts.